everybody, it's comedian Trent McClellan, and you're listening to my podcast called The Generators. Every single week, I have a cool guest, and we talk about uh, life, professions, creativity, success, failure, and all sorts of other cool stuff. In every single one of these conversations, I learned a great deal, and I'm pretty sure you're going to learn a great deal, too. So uh, hang on tight, and thanks for listening to The Generators. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening on this Labor Day weekend to The Generators with me, Mr. Trent McClellan. Welcome back. And if you're new, welcome. Come in. Take off your shoes. Leave them on. I don't care. It's not like you're going to be in my house. Stay where you are. Do what you want to do. Maybe you're driving right now. You know, maybe you're cursing someone out at a crosswalk. I don't know. Maybe you're out for a jog and you're like, you know what? I'm sick and tired of dance music and I need to listen to some dude I've never met ramble on and uh, that's going to motivate me to shed these extra pounds. I don't know. I don't know what kind of medium you're listening to it in, but thank you for listening. Hope you're having a good uh, Labor Day weekend if you're uh, so inclined to be doing that kind of thing. Um, What did I do this weekend? I got surprised, everybody. Do you like surprises? Do you like surprise parties? Well, that's what happened to me, okay? I thought I was going to meet two friends for drinks, and I get there, and there's like to this place called Hayden Block and Whiskey, which is in Kensington and Calgary, which is fantastic if you have not been. Incredible, uh, kind of southern, slow-cooked food, delicious, and great drinks. Check it out. Hayden Block and Whiskey, Kensington, Calgary. Go check it out. Anyway, I go in there, love going there, know the owner there, Ian, who's also from Newfoundland, by the way. We, uh, I, I go to a friend's house for a drink first, and he's like, okay, let's go. We get there. I walk in the door. There's like, I don't know, like 20-plus comics there all hanging out, surprise, balloons, congrats on 22 minutes, all that stuff. Really, really cool thing for them to do. They put a lot of work and effort into it, and uh, I was uh, very touched by it all, I have to say. It was... Uh, you're a little embarrassed at first because you're like everyone is yelling in this one section and the whole bar and restaurants looking at you like what the hell's going on and um but I gotta say it was really cool for them to uh to to organize that and to get everyone together and for all the comics who showed up uh thank you so much I really do I really do appreciate it it was nice it was a nice moment and um i uh I love this comedy community here man in calgary it is um it has been nothing but good to me, and uh, everything that I've accomplished uh, in my comedy career, I have not done alone. I have done it by being a part of um, the incredible scene that we have here in terms of all the great venues. Um, there are so many incredible acts that come through this city all the time at the clubs and at all the other fantastic venues that we have, all the great theaters, and, and uh, you get to watch it all. And so I always felt like this place... Um, it, it, it felt like this place was for me the, from the, from the, pretty much the minute I got here and the minute I walked into a comedy club the first time I was like, it just felt like, you know, when you're trying a jacket and it fits great, that's what this city felt like. And, uh, and so I'm very, very grateful that, uh, uh, for everything this, this city's offered me and the people in the city have offered me in terms of, you know, fans and audiences, but also like comedians who've 
been so generous with their time and their advice and comics who've been around for a lot longer than me and just there's always great comics coming you know coming up through the scene here and uh i uh i feel i feel very fortunate that i chose this city to start stand up in so um yeah i was really touched by uh everyone coming out and and uh giving me their uh their well wishes it uh it meant a lot so thank you to to all those amazing people um i'm trying to pack up too you know speaking of all that i mean it's stressful to go wow i gotta pack up a ton of stuff and get myself to halifax this week you know so uh crazy schedule fly to halifax set up there for a couple of days then fly from halifax to st john's to do a show there that's already sold out that sold out a few weeks back which is insane do that we're doing a q a at that one too by the way um, then fly back the next day on the Sunday and then start 22 on the Monday. So it's insane schedule, but such is my life. It, none of it makes sense. It's all insane. I just accept it and be grateful and move forward. Um, so yeah, crazy week. And I got a lot of stuff to pack up and tie up loose ends here. So it's a little, uh, overwhelming, a little stressful, but, uh, you know what? I'm going to survive it. It's going to be good. It's going to be all great. Um, Fort McMurray tickets. Man, I don't know what to say about you guys up there. Uh, they are, they're like well over half gone already, and we haven't put a poster up. We, this is all just social media, and um, folks are coming out and took advantage of the early bird prices, and now they're still going. So it's like I don't know. We're we got to be close to like eighty percent sold out up there. Like it's it's saying the show's not till October twenty first. So. Wow, crazy. So it looks like that one's well on its way to a sellout. So if you're in the Fort McMurray area and you want to get to that show, you should go to the Keanu Theater website or go to transcomedy.com and get your tickets ASAP because it's they're going in big chunks every single day. And thanks to everyone who is doing that. I really appreciate your support up there. So good to me. One of the first um, cities to kind of get behind my stand-up and, and – um, and uh, give me that love and support when I kind of stepped in on my own to do my own thing. So thank you so much for all the love up there for McMurray. My guest this week, kids, is Stephen Caldwell. Stephen Caldwell is the former captain of Toronto FC in the MLS Soccer League. He's also played for Burnley, Birmingham, uh, Wigan Athletic. He's played for Newcastle, Sunderland. He was a Scottish international and uh, we talk via phone from his home now in Toronto. He's also a broadcaster with TSN. And um, I, uh, yeah, I reached out to him and he was like, yeah, sure, let's do this. And we had a great talk about, you know, professional soccer, the lifestyle of a professional soccer player and um, what the transition was like from him coming f- for him coming from the UK into North America and the challenges that, that presented and um, it's just how we approach being a captain of a team, what his leadership style was like, all this stuff that I love talking about. And for those of you who may know me personally, I love soccer, played it since I was a young kid, played in university, played it at a senior men's level. And my dream, if I couldn't have been a professional stand-up comedian, I would have loved to have been a professional soccer player, but it wasn't in the cards for me. So now getting to talk to a professional soccer player about what it's really like, I mean, I was like, Oh, my God. I was a kid in a candy store. It was just – it was fantastic. And Stephen, uh, just a real genuine, nice guy. You can just tell by talking to people, even when we set up the conversation, just a really good, genuine dude. 
And uh, yeah, this one's a great one. Um, Steven's got a thick Scottish accent as well, which is super cool. So if you're just into accents, you know what I mean? If you're just like, man, I just like listening to a Scottish dude talk for an hour, then this thing is for you. You know what I mean? This is how often you get to do that. It's just Scottish dude talking for an hour. I mean, it's not that alone could be something you could do. That could be a podcast and it may exist out there already called Scottish dude talking for an hour. And it's just a Scottish dude talking for you guessed it one hour. And that's all it is, you know, cause some people just dig that Scottish accent and I get it. It, uh, it's, I mean, he's been in Toronto a long time and it's still full on Scottish. I mean, there's no like, Hey, I'm, there's a little hint of something in there. No, no, no. There's no hint. This is full on Scottish. And, uh, it, yeah, it was a fantastic chat, man. He's a good dude. And, uh, yeah, this one's all soccer. So all you soccer junkies out there, you spread this around, you tell your friends about it. Um, Stephen Caldwell, you know, former captain of Toronto FC. So cool that he uh, decided to be on the podcast with me. And, uh, yeah, all the guests have been just wow, so cool. So awesome with their time. So to, uh, wrap up before I, uh, you get to hear Stevens, uh, and my chat, uh, you Fort McMurray, make sure you get your tickets ASAP. As I said, this thing is going to sell out and it looks like it may sell out in the next little while, next few days here. So get you move on if you're doing that. And, um, yeah, Sit back, listen. If you're jogging, keep jogging. Pick up the pace now a little bit. Let's lift those knees. Let's push it a little bit. You know, this ain't recreation. You're not out here for some leisurely walk. You're like, you're out here for a goal. You want to reach something. You want to achieve something. All right? So let's move your ass and let's get it done. Okay? And what better way to do it than by listening to a guy who's a professional soccer player who's pushed himself to a level, okay, in terms of of, of cardio endurance. He's done that. He's had to do it. They had to do fitness testing, okay? It's not all berries. It's not all just Rolex watches. When you're a professional soccer player, you got to put your body on the line and you got to push it. All right. So that's what you're going to do right now. If you're running, if you're not, if you're in a car, that's fine. You know what I mean? Don't disregard all that last part. That's not got nothing to do with you. Okay. But, um, yeah, enjoy this conversation with, uh, Stephen Caldwell. All right. Bye-bye. Strictly bitch, you don't play around Cover much ground, got game by the town Getting paid is a forte Each and every day, to play away I can't get her out of my mind I think about the girl all the time East side to the west side Pushing fat rides, it's no surprise all right, Stephen Caldwell is on the other end of the line. He's in a in a car uh, on his way to uh, his kid's soccer game, and I'm in Calgary, and we're talking through the uh, miracle technology of phones. Stephen, how are you? I'm great, Shane. How are you? I'm pretty good, man. I'm pretty good. You just couldn't stay away. You know, you retire, and you're like, no, I still got to get myself to a patch of grass to watch your son play. So uh, how, how, is yeah. he, how is he as a player? Is he, is he a center back or where, what position does he play? No, there are. So my youngest is nine, Robbie's nine. And he, um, he plays with my eldest, Will, uh, for a team in Toronto in the GTA. And they both play U10. So he plays a year up. But um, they're good little players. They're both sort of midfielders. But... Um, Pretty technical, good little talents. Uh, they love the game, so I try to go along and, and help out with coaching and we obviously organisation towards the team. And it's it's a lot of fun. It should be fun at ten years old. You know, it shouldn't be too serious. And I think uh, they've got a good 
good group of guys and a, a you know a great group of parents and people around about the organization so it's great to be involved yeah it's interesting too because when i look back on my modern soccer days i think about when kids get plugged into positions and when you think back about your career do you recall when it was that Stephen Caldwell is going to be a center back, was that were you was that position designated to you pretty early in your uh, in your youth soccer days, or when did that come about for you? No, actually, it's a great point because I'm really against positions. Obviously, most kids kind of play in that same area, but really, we should be mixing around the positions and allowing kids to play in uh, in different areas and learn the game in different in different uh, positions and, and what it takes to kind of play that area. And for me, it was. It was kind of random. I was more of a, well, a starting striker, um, and then I kind of went back to midfield, and I played there for a long time, even to a point where, you know, even at Newcastle when I was in the first team, I played some games in midfield, and um, and most games for my youth team at Newcastle in midfield. But I think it was pretty obvious that I was a centre back, and I was going to become a centre back. I just think that um, it was helpful for my feet and my education and kind of what it took to, to play the game, to play in that position for for a number of years. And um, I, I definitely advocate that for most kids to, to try and play a number of different positions, learn what it takes. Obviously, you might think you're right back and you get put up front or you get put out wide right in, the, in an attacking area and you score a few goals or you look quite attacking and before you know it, that, that's your position. So anybody out there listening who, who's you know younger and, and loves the game of soccer, Never be pigeonholed by a certain position, and, and what people tell you, you just never know what what kind of comes as you develop and you grow. Yeah, I think you're right. It, it's uh, quite often too when I played, it was kind of based on size. So if you were a bigger kid, it was like you were going to be you were going to be in the back line. It was like yeah, I, I would always yeah. make the argument like I'd be a great target guy. You know, I'm six three. I mean, put me up there. You know, I enjoyed the ball at my feet. And they're like, ah, no, he's going to be good in the air. And I was always horrible in the air. I was I was always a guy that loved it at my feet. So <laughs> I think subconsciously I was doing that. So I would go up front. They're like, well, he, he's a liability in the box defending. So let's uh, let's let's put him out here. <laughs> I had to use some mind control, some uh, reverse psychology tricks to find find my yeah. way around. So um, I think, yeah, a lot of times size plays a big role. When it, but I look at like you know Josie Altador now is a big, big guy, and and that's that's quite an effective thing to have a big guy up top who can just who can kind of post up and shield and just hold balls up so that everyone else can kind of gather around and play from there. So I, I love the idea of having a big guy up top. Yeah, I mean, when you think about Josie and, and Seba, obviously Sebastian Javinko is, is is tiny. He's five foot five, five foot six, and Josie's six three, and and uh, you know, big guy. And really, for a number of years, the sort of big man, small man combo has been like a real success up top. And you kind of have this target man. I think back in the day, more of kind of you play it up to him in the air, and he he flicks it on and behind, and the the, the, the small dynamic striker gets onto things and, and is through on goal, whereas this partnership with these two is a little bit different. Josie is a big guy, he's very good at holding the ball up, but and he and he is decent in the air, but his biggest strength is kinda of getting in his his chest area or in his feet and, and for him to then use that uh deft touch of his at times to kinda of bring people into the game and he really is improving at that. I think he's um he's had a sort of slower start to his TFC career I think in the beginning he maybe had the scars from the UK and his time at Sunderland where it never went so well but I have to say in the last 
six months, maybe the end of the season, running into playoffs and then continuing it this season. I think he's been absolutely outstanding. He's uh, he's hold up play, he's kind of presence, the way that he you know he knows what he brings to this team, and he's kind of standing in this team. His confidence uh, through that really tells you how important he is, and I think that as a duo, there's not often that both of them are off their game, and when you have two players like that uh, in MLS or in any league, then and you know you're going to score goals, it really makes everybody else's job a lot easier. Yeah, I agree. They they do play well off each other together, and and the thing I enjoy about watching uh, Altidore play as well is like you'll see someone kind of come in and kind of shoulder nudge him, and he's just so powerful that people people just go flying off. It's like it's like they've just hit a tank, and he's just still moving with it. It's like it's really fun to watch. Whereas Javinko obviously is you know got the tricks in the in the in his pocket and can kind of turn on a dime and those things. I don't know about you, but like when I I played some time at, uh, in the back line as well, and like I hated defending those little tiny guys that could just change directions so quickly and as a big guy it took me so long to gather myself you know to get to get I didn't have that low center of gravity so it was always a pain in the ass chasing these little tiny tiny guys around for nine yeah. minutes you know and uh yeah, Javik, and, Javik and, classic and the about, yeah the thing about Seba as well is he's, he's extremely strong you know he's like the like tree trunks in, in terms of the strength and, and sort of solid core base of him so you think you can kind of move them easy and you can't, and then you use excessive force. And when a guy's six foot two to six foot seven, I think uh, Schuberg at Colorado Rapids like six foot seven. Right. And as soon as he starts showing force on a guy who's five foot five, he immediately gets a free kick and he gets a decision. So <laughs> um, it's really difficult because the smaller guys are strong, but they kind of get the benefit of the doubt to the referee because it just looks weird when you see this big guy kind of out muscling. A smaller guy, so it's, it's a real strength to Javinko is the way that he kind of uses that that kind of core strength that has to, to manipulate defenders, manipulate the ball. He's he's a, a very difficult player to play against, and like I say, I do think there's a real uh, you know they like each other a lot, Sebastian and Josie, and they definitely have a, a, an improving relationship in, in terms of the partnership up top, and they're both magnificent players in their own right. So. They're an unbelievable combination. Probably the best this season in MLS, I think it's fair to say. And, uh, it really gives confidence to that, the rest of that team, knowing that we're probably going to score through one of these two guys. So it's just a case of trying to keep it tight at the back and, and there's every chance we'll win the game. Yeah, indeed. And I always feel about with, uh, with Seba as well, it's like what a find for TFC to find a guy of that quality to come to the team at kind of the peak of his career. You know, so many other players come on the other side on the tw- in the twilight years of their career, but for a guy to come uh, at this point and just absolutely dominate the league, I mean, that that's a rare bit of business. That's hard to find, especially in MLS, you know. So um, what a jewel yeah. for TFC to, to actually be able to lock that up and, and, and have him be happy, obviously, with the club and actually want to stay. And he must be enjoying life off the field as well, I would imagine. I mean, you would know more than I. Yeah, I mean, it's a magnificent situation. It was just, like, really special where he was kind of struggling to find a place at Juventus. And, you know, there's there's no disgrace in that. They've went on to some great things in the last few years. And he couldn't find that starting role. And he's looking for the next place to play. And, obviously, Toronto and, and MLS provided, a you know, a, a, a nice option to him. They were going to pay him a lot of money. And it was a chance for him to kind of be a superstar and, you know, there's no doubt he's grabbed that opportunity. He's 
really reveled in the fact that he's he's been this guy's this team's uh, star performer for you know the, the, the two and a half two and three quarter years that he's been there and um, credit to him for for having the personality to kind of accept that and to the quality to then deliver on that. But no doubt about it, you know he, he loves the city. He likes to have a little bit of anonymity. It's difficult to to live in Turin and play for Juventus. Everywhere you go, people want to talk football, as we call it, or soccer, and they want to know what happened at the weekend and what's going to happen the next weekend. And I've lived in the northeast England, which is a similar type environment. It's really Magnificent place to play, but very, um, very claustrophobic, very stifling uh, lifestyle to kind of live. And I think he's, he's relished the chance to come to a place where, yes, football's important and people idolise him, but it's not quite the be-all and end-all. And he can find these little areas and pockets where he can have a coffee or he can he can have a nice meal and, and people aren't going to come over and bother him or talk to him. And uh, It's really, I think, helped his football and, and helped him grow as a, as a football player and as an individual, did you have you seen the uh, the class of '92 documentary about uh, the man you yeah. two coming up together? And uh, yeah, there's a section yeah. in that where Phil Neville, Phil Neville talks about uh, him being in in out for dinner with his wife, and he goes to the restroom, and someone someone threatens him in the restroom because they recognize who he is, and he's, he has to grab his wife and go, "Oh, we got to go home." And I don't know if in Canada we really realize how serious things can get in Europe and the UK uh, with regards to players and trying, trying to maintain somewhat of a normal personal life. You know, it's, it's kind of unheard of. I think, you know, obviously hockey here is huge and, but I don't know if it goes to that degree of people kind of really becoming a little unhinged a little bit, you know what I mean? So it's, uh, it, it must be hard. You're right to kind of find that little pocket of privacy where you can go out with your wife or your children and, and not feel like you're going to be, uh, there's going to be an issue of any kind. Yeah. And it's, it's difficult to explain. And I always try to say, you know, just imagine being a maple leaf and, you know, and and sort of the dark days of, you know, a few years past where it it wasn't that successful. And, these guys were struggling to kind of go to bars and clubs because people would say, how can you be drinking, you know, or, you know, the records, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, with soccer, it's more a kind of lifestyle religion thing, you know, where they feel like they own a PC because they're so fanatical about their club. They kind of go to work on a Monday morning and everything's geared towards just that Saturday where they can get out or they can follow the team and they can have a few beers and, and really get behind the team. But, they, but that, gives them a sense of kind of they have a piece of you and it's it's great it can be the best of times you know and it can also be like really really difficult to kind of mentally cope with that and I have some like unbelievable stories from my brother's time at Celtic uh, when he played there in Scotland which is another level of fan you know fanatic Um, and my time in the North East with Sunderland where we weren't having such a good time you come at the stadium on a a Tuesday night, you maybe lost to Liverpool 2-1, and there's 10, 12,000 people waiting there to try and give you some kind of abuse and tell you what you're doing wrong, and it's <laughs> it's very, very difficult. It's, it's, it tells you a lot about yourself. You know, I've played in games at Sunderland and Newcastle where you're sort of getting, getting booed every touch as a team, and you're being asked to, like, accept the ball, you know, and uh, you're sort of like I don't know if I want the ball here and then you learn about yourself well you know really as a professional you should want the ball you should want to get on the ball and do things as much as possible even if you are having one of the games and 
that's the sort of level of uh, fandom that we have in the UK, and I don't think we appreciate that um, in North America. I don't even think it gets like that at hockey level in terms of during the game in the arena. Maybe off the field a little bit uh, intrusive, but uh, certainly in North America, when you play the game, you play soccer, you don't have that in the stadium. You have this lovely atmosphere. You have more of a kind of occasion atmosphere rather than intensity towards what's happening on the field. And it can be good and bad. And I do think we'll develop that in North America as time goes on. I think it'll become more fanatical. But at this time, it's, it's still a little bit... Um, Nicey, nicey, and, and in a lot of ways that can be that can be a decent environment to play in. Yeah, I know some of the folks that I've worked with in entertainment in the stand-up world, um, who are who I guess you would, you would say are are famous in some degree. Their yeah. one, one of their lines has been that they're kind of fine with people getting photographs and those kind of things unless they have their kids with them. They feel like that's yeah. kind of their private family time, and but people will kind of step yeah. in. And kind of brush their kids aside and be like, oh, can I get a photograph? Can I, you know, they're just going on about, you know, their favorite bid or a show they went to or whatever. And, and they're kind of, this person is trying to find their kids in this melee of kind of everyone gathered around. And now it was this special time having ice cream on a Sunday. And now it's become this gong yeah. show on a sidewalk, you know, and, and people are, you know, you get it. People are excited, but at the same time, they forget that. That person's a human being who's a who's a dad or he's with his yeah. wife, you know. Like you, there's a part of you outside of that, but quite often um, people people tend to forget that or overlook it. Yeah, I absolutely agree, mate. And I think that you know when we think about real superstars in the world, like a Brad Pitt or a, a David Beckham or you know whoever, um, a Chris Rock, for example, if it's a stand-up comedian slash actor, they don't realize the level they kind of. Um, intrusion and the way that they always have to be on and and kind of present in the situation and, and it's, it's difficult because there's times you want to kind of say this is my time I'm at a bar or I'm with my kids or I'm doing whatever but really when you're that level of superstar you always have to be on and I always I love I read an article on Vanity Fair a while back about um, about friends and it was it was incredible um, obviously David Swimmer and, and uh, Courtney Cox and the gang and the producer took them to Vegas just as his friends was about to kind of start and it was about to be shown on TV. And they were sitting at a table and nobody knew who they were or cared about them. And this producer guy had the insight to say to every one of them, you know, look around. And they sort of had a glance around this restaurant. He said, this is never going to be like this again for you guys. You guys are never, the six years are never going to be able to be in the same room again where people crowd around you and want a piece of you. And, and they never really understood that at the time obviously but then obviously history and, and time has told us that they guys were never in a room together ever again really unless they were filming the show and that level of uh, sort of fame or, or celebrity is, is really difficult to accept and I think you know getting a little bit back to soccer and Michael Bradley or Josie Allador or, or certainly Sebastian Giovinco to come to a city like Toronto where it is so cosmopolitan and our our sports stars and our actors and whoever lives and comes and spends time in a city. We really have a cosmopolitan group of people that never really, you know, want to kind of step into areas of privacy or, or personal space where they, they, they kind of interrupt that. And I, that's why I love this city. And I think that's why most athletes really appreciate living and being in this city.
Yeah, you kind of get the best of both worlds, right? You get the passionate fan yeah. who's also somewhat uh, somewhat respectful and, and respecting boundaries. Um, I want to get back to your, your early days again because I, I, I used to get this shit all the time when I played. It was like when, you, when I did play in the back line, it's like uh, did you go through the phase for you personally of like your role as a center back was like just to win balls and run people over and then give it to the talented people and then let them play? But then, you know, the role of the center back evolved, right? Where you had, you have the Rio Ferdinands, the guys who are just as athletic, who, who have fantastic touch, who can, who can play with the ball at their feet. Did you, did you go through that phase yourself where you kind of, you were trying to rediscover the position because it, because the game had kind of changed a little bit and, and you have coaches who are kind of holding on to the old way. Like you're a center back. This is your role. Win it, dish it, and you're done. As opposed to now being involved in the attack and those kind of things. Did you go through that transition yourself, career-wise? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, and it, it, it's funny you bring it up because I was lucky that I kind of came through. I was always the sort of passing center half. I wouldn't say I was the most technical, but I never liked to kind of kick the ball forward. I always liked to play a pass to somebody else. And uh, when I was at Newcastle, I had a Scottish coach called Tommy Craig who. I'd been at Celtic and I'd been a very, very good player for Newcastle and Sheffield Wednesday and Aberdeen and, and played for a few clubs. And, and Tommy was a guy who kind of taught me the basics of the game and somebody who I respect a great deal to this day. And, and Tommy always would say when you went up for header, if you can, you would try and header the ball towards one of your shots. You would nod it down the side or, you know, into a midfield area where one of your guys could pick it up. And, and so I was kind of brought up with that methodology. And then when I got to Sunderland after, you know, I left Newcastle, I then joined Mick McCarthy, who was very much a no-nonsense header it and sort of not kick it as far as you can. That's a bit unfair, but definitely sort of clear your lines, you know, be safe, this kind of guy. And when I first got there, I'm like nodding things down to fullbacks and no, that's not what I'm wanting. You know, can you just header it 30 or 40 yards up the park and, it was a real interesting time for me because I'm 24 years old. I've no real experience of first-team football. And it made me think about, you know, the process and what somebody wants. And at the end of the day, you have to have the intelligence and the, the ability, hopefully, and the insight to say, well, what does this guy want? Who is my head coach or who is my manager? And what is he asking for? And really, your job's to kind of deliver on that, you know? So... Yeah, it's very common right now that people are saying centre-backs, you know, drive forward with the ball, create a situation where, you know, somebody comes to you and then play around them and, and, and meet ball playing. And, and that's great. And that's definitely the way that I want to see the game played. But who's to say that in five years' time or at some other club, a, a manager will be like, can you just get the ball forward? Can you just kick it long? Can you, can you head it as far as you can? And at the end of the day, my advice again would be just, you obviously have to, Accept whatever that coach or that that manager's telling you, and 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 take his instructions onto that field and do what he asks. And I always tried to do that as, as I got more mature and I started to realise that different guys and different clubs expect different things. I always just went with what that manager wanted. If he wanted me to pass the ball completely, then I spread it at the back and I passed it completely. And if he wanted it to be safe, then I just headed it as far as I could. All right. Or I kicked it out for a throw in every time I felt like I was under a bit of pressure. Yeah, it's it's it really comes down to the individual, like the player himself as well. Like you have some real strong characters who've built a career playing a certain way. A new manager comes in, 
he's saying now we're not doing A, B, and C anymore. Like I look at Klopp at Liverpool with this high pressure up top, and then yeah. you know if you're if you're if you're a forward and you're not used to giving that level of pressure, you're going to find yourself sitting down or not even dressed. And so now you have yeah. a decision to make. It's like, well, you just kind of sulk and not do what, what he's asking you to do and add this layer to your game. Or do you go, no, 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 I'm going to be good enough doing what I do that he's going to let me just do what I do. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's kind of the – you have certain, yeah. certain characters who are just stubborn. And, well, no, this is what I do, and this is what I bring to the party. And if you don't like it, tough. But the manager's making the decisions at the end of the day. He decides if you're going to play uh, or yeah. you know, if you're not going to play. Well, the, the, these managers, we're talking about Klopp and Conte and Mourinho and Guardiola and Wenger. These managers are so stubborn, so you're never going to beat these guys. You know, at the end of the day, what they're asking for is exactly what they want. And if you're not going to provide that, I guarantee you that guy's going to get moved on. And, and Pep is sort of one of the guys that you think is, I wouldn't say soft, but a bit more sort of friendly and end of the day he's completely ruthless if you're not giving that guy what he's asking for to the letter you're gone you're out that club you're not going to survive so again I always as I got older I'm like what's this manager expecting from me I'm going to deliver that I'm going to do it to the best of my ability and if it wasn't to my style then I would probably have a word with him and say you know this is not what I'm good at and he either accepted that and asked for something different or he moved me on, and, and that's the kind of way that it went. So, yeah, it's tough. You have these, you have these guys on, well, Neymar's on, what, £600,000 a week now. Um, <laughs> so it's very difficult to tell him what to do. But at the end of the day, you have to have that strength and that stubbornness as a manager because if you've got 25 personalities expecting they can do what they think's right, then you're never going to have a good team. So one man has to be in charge. That man has to be the head coach or the manager. And... Everybody has to buy into that or that team will never be good. Yeah, it's one of those things too, you know, you've you've played on enough teams and, and I've played, you know, on a bunch of teams at an amateur level and uh the players know, you know, like you, you may think you're fooling you're fooling the manager or you're fooling whatever, but your teammates know if you're doing the job or you're not doing the job and you're right. I think once you have that little crack in the foundation in terms of what we're supposed to be doing as a unit, if one person's not on board with that, it does lend itself to other players on the pitch starting to go rogue and go off on their own. So, you know what I mean? So now wingbacks aren't quite doing what they should be doing 100%. Well, because this guy up top is not pressuring like he's supposed to be either. So I'm also going to take my own road kind of thing. And you'll see it kind of crack down to the whole foundation. And credit to Pep, I mean, that's what he's done over time is built these teams that play as a unit. And if that means sitting a star player, that means sitting a star player. But all 11 are going to buy into this this style of play and we're going to move as an 11 offensively and defensively. Yeah, you must have control. You must have discipline on a, on a team or a squad because like you say, as soon as one crack appears, it's like a disease that just spreads so quickly. And before you know it, you have people with different agendas, different ideas of what's right and what's wrong, and different levels of commitment towards that, that process or that, that, that team performance. And that's the beginning of the end. So you have to be very resolute and, and very sure and very precise in what you're asking for. And, and the guys need to understand what that is. And if they don't and they start to kind of become confused or or they don't listen or follow what you're saying, then it's the beginning of the end because everybody starts to do what they think's right. And once you've got 
probably normally a squad of twenty five, you've probably only got I'd say a maximum of like seven or eight who are actually uh type A leader personalities who are actually gonna um sort of determine a change within a group and once they start going in different directions you're in big trouble and that for me is a, a big role of a coach to make sure that does that never happens, to make sure they seven or eight are on board and they are in agreement with what you're asking for and then they in turn will make sure that the other 14 or 15 will, will be on board as well. That's a good point you brought up too about um, leaders within a dressing room. You were a captain at every single team you played at. What was yeah. what was your leadership style? Were were you a guy who was kind of a private word with someone? Were you a guy to stand up in the dress room and kind of you know do the yelling and the screaming and knock over some water bottles? Like what was? How did you approach that leadership? And if you're wearing the armband, what did you see your role as being uh, on that squad? Well, well, first and foremost, my role was to be a go-between between my manager and my head coach and my players. So that's what I was. I was that bridge between, you know, the best the best managers I had really leaned on me and asked me for advice and, and, and you know, uh, to guide the team. And so then I felt that it was my responsibility for him to feel like I could get his point across to that group and for that group individually to think that I can get their points across to that manager. So what I, I, my first role was always to find a common goal with every player. Now, when you're talking about 25 people, as you know, in any walk of life, 25 people don't get on, you know, or I don't get on with 25 different people. So it's my responsibility to find a common goal with that one guy, whether it be a hobby or a family or lifestyle or uh, childhood or I don't know, like find a common goal with that guy, find a trust, make that guy think that I have his best interests at heart. Once I had that, which thankfully I feel like I had at most clubs I was ever at, I had these guys understanding that I had their best interest at heart. Then it was my job to battle for their best interests with with that manager, but battle for them in a in a larger kind of a larger group, which is not easy because one guy will be asking for one thing, the other guy asking for completely opposite. Then you're a mediator and you're asking, you're talking to these two guys and saying, listen, probably best for this group is somewhere in the middle, or or this is best for this group. Once I then had everybody's buy-in, I then went and sold that to a manager. That that's it on a kind of um, personal, uh, mental level. I think in terms of everything else, in terms of leading, in terms of asking for the best, it was always about standards for me and about values. And I always go on about this word values for me. It's the most important word in any walk of life. Never mind sport. Values. What you stand for. The integrity of that club or that team or that group, you know, what is it that we hope to achieve? I mean, everybody wants to win, but how do we want to win? What are our values? What are we standing for? And uh, for me, I always was very clear on what I stood for and what I wanted. And it was hard work and it was dedication and it was like togetherness. And I, I, I sort of led by example in that regard. And I was never the best player in any team I ever played for, but I was always one of the best trainers. I was always one of the best professionals and I was definitely always one of the best mentally prepared. And so nobody could ever question me on that. And, and I think that's why I was given the responsibility of captain most times when, when I was at a club because people kind of followed me because of the, the examples I set. I see. And, and it's also, 
you know, it's interesting too, because when you came into TFC, for example, you're coming in as the new guy. Was that difficult for you to come in as, as someone who hasn't been there for a while and now this armband's going to go to you? Was that a different approach for you? Was that, did that feel a little bit different? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I go back to even when I went to Burnley, it was, you know, it was a big move for Burnley and it was at the end of the window and I got there and I got there on a Thursday night. So I got Friday morning a train, came off the bench on the Saturday. The next Saturday, which was like, what, eight days later, he named me as captain. My manager, Steve Cosgrove, named me as captain. And I was like, pulling my hair, like, oh my God, I can't. <laughs> You know, it was way too early because these guys were um, were looking at me going, why is this guy, ca-? you know, there was sort of this, why is this guy captain so early? And, I'm, and I didn't want that because it was way too early. But this guy seen someone in me, he wanted me to be captain. And so I just accepted that. I then gained the trust. It was, you know, slow at the start because they were a little bit wary of me. But they then realized I was a good guy and I trained hard and I did the, the best that I could. Uh, before you know it, you know, I was obviously the best captain. And TFC was another sort of example of that where it was even worse because my friend was captain. Darren O'Day was, was a guy who played at Celtic with my brother and I, I knew him personally. And he was captain at the time, but I could tell there was some friction between Brian Nelson and, and the staff and, and Darren. And, the, you know, there was potentially him moving on. And Ryan and I had talked about me becoming captain. I'm like, please, just don't change anything. Nothing changes with me, whether I'm captain or not just leave me where I am just now and eventually Darren moved on to someone else and then I became captain which was sort of the right time and um, like I always loved being captain but I think for me it was never that important that I actually had that armband on my arm it was was a great privilege and honour but it never changed the way that I kind of behaved and the way that I kind of tried to act in the dressing room because like I say leadership was one of my biggest strengths and I knew that was why I was important to a team. So I always did things the sort of the same way, whether I was wearing that armband or not. I want to talk about risk a little bit. So you you come over to Toronto. Had you been to Canada before you'd come to TFC? Had you been over here before? Yeah, I'd been to Vancouver with Sunderland on, on pre-season. Um, and I'd obviously heard about Toronto and I had a friend who I played with at Burnley called Richard Eckersley, who was at Toronto. So yeah. I knew it was a terrific city, but I'd never been to Toronto before. So what did you? What was your expectation with regards to standard of play, facilities, all those things? Did you were you kind of did you feel like you were kind of going into it a little bit blind, or, or had you heard through kind of the grapevine, other coaches, other players? Kind of, did you have a sense of what you were getting into? Getting into? No, I actually never really had a sense of what I was getting into, but. I was certain that I wanted a new challenge and um, and this opportunity Toronto or MLS came up and I, like I said, I knew Toronto, my friend, a good friend of mine had visited Richard Eckersley uh, maybe a year or so before and he had came back saying to me, um, yeah, Toronto's a magnificent city and I'm like, all right, he's like, oh, it's like New York and I'm like, come on, it's not like New York. You know, I remember sort of <laughs> laughing at him. You know, it's incredible. It's just a, a magnificent place. You know, you'll love it. And so that was in the back of my mind. I got a call. Ryan Nelson was wanting me to come for a you know period of time. I'm like, this sounds kind of interesting. I know this is a good city with what I've heard the people that I respect. And, you know, it sounds like a chance. I don't know about MLS. Everybody's saying it's a kind of, 
you know, you go there when you're old, and but lifestyle is going to be pretty good, and I'll see what it's like. And I got here, and I was so surprised with the kind of quality of the soccer, and and obviously the lifestyle was great. I no doubt about that. But you know, the project and the quality of the soccer and the sort of need that Toronto had at the time for a leader and and somebody like me to kind of um, aid to try and help improve these young guys and, and to bring them on and people with great potential but also to kind of show them what it takes to be a, a great professional. And like I said before, I, I never, ever call myself a great player. I, I certainly don't feel like that, but I was a great professional. I was as good as, as most I ever met. And, and so to bring that professionalism and, you know, the preparation it takes to kind of perform at the best of your ability, whatever that ability is, was, was in me. And, and I knew that I could be really effective in that regard and raise standards, raise values and let people know that, this is what we expect for Toronto moving forward, and we know it's going to take us one, two, five years to get there, but this is the direction we're heading, and uh, right away, within a week, I'm like, I'm perfect for this place, and thankfully, the, the club felt the same. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because you know, quite often, people who follow the team, you think about the players, and players move onward, but... You know, you have you have families involved, right? Like people have wives, people have children. These are these are families moving ultimately, and so you know you see situations sometimes where a player will go off and the family will stay back where they are because it's you know it's a temporary thing. We're not quite sure yet, and it seems like there's a lot of balls in the air and a lot of things to consider before you sign on a dotted line and go, yeah, this is this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Toronto. Was there was there any kind of any of that mental walking going on for you where you had to think kind of bigger picture overall for, for your family? Yeah, and I, I was kind of lucky in that regard because when I first came, it was a loan period and, and that was twofold because I wanted to come in July. Uh, I'd, I'd played 45, 50 games for Birmingham that season and I was obviously a little tired and my family were living in the northeast and I'd been living in an apartment in Birmingham and commuting back and forward and they'd been coming up at weekends and, you know, it was not an ideal situation and I was I was missing my kids and I wanted to spend the summer with them and, and so my initial reaction was, yeah, I'll come in July and my agent said, Ryan wants you to come in, in, in May uh, and so I said, okay, but, I, you know, I don't want that. He's like, well, why don't you call Ryan and, and explain it and uh, it was a very smart move by my agent because he knew that what would happen. And I went on a call to Ryan and I said, you know, thanks for the offer, but I'm going to, I'll come in July if you still need the centre half. He's like, no, I need you now. And here's why. And he went through the explanation. And Ryan and I, obviously, uh, are very close friends. Ryan Nelson and uh, I came off the phone and my wife was like, oh, so did you tell him you're coming in July? I'm like, no, I leave uh, Tuesday. <laughs> so. <laughs> It was it was quite funny. She's like, wow, we're supposed to be going to Florida. And you told him. You Florida. told him. You told him, Stephen yeah, Caldwell. Yeah, yeah. no uncertain terms. I'll be five minutes, and before <laughs> I knew it, it was like I'm on a plane, and um, I, I went with kind of my eyes open, and you know what? This is about a vacation, and I can, you know, see what this is like, and it's a great experience, and you know, my kids were going to come for a few days. We cancelled a part of the vacation. They were going to come into Toronto, and. I was going to be in, in, in Orlando for a couple You know, so everybody was kind of happy. And, and like I say, it was sort of more of a, a kind of casual, let's see how it goes. And, and within a week, a few days, I was like, this is perfect. This is what I want. And um, and it was a case of just the club knowing that I was the right guy because my salary was reasonably high in a salary cap league. And, you know, it had to be, to be right for everybody. And 
and thankfully it was. But I have to say, and and uh, you know, great credit to MLSC and and certainly to TFC as, as a franchise. But one of the best clubs I, if not the best, I ever played for in terms of uh, player liaisons and and people looking after you and people you know advising you in the best places to live. You know, the best restaurants to eat, the best schools for your kids to go to, like, absolutely incredible level of service uh, for TFC. Uh, and I couldn't believe it. I, like, it blew the socks off me. It's like a level of a top Premier League team. Um, and, and that also helps, you know. You, and this is not just me. You know, I, I came here in 2013 since then. And before then, there was Torsten Frings, who loves the city, loves the football club. There was um, uh, Mavinga, so happy to be here, Chris Mavinga. Delighted with the, the kind of level of care that he's had. Uh, Victor Vasquez, who was having a, an awful time in uh, in Mexico, who's now loves the city. You know, his wife setting up a, a, a business. His family are absolutely settled, and, and absolute credit to the football club and, and the level of service. I have to say, it's, it's second to none, and uh, it made me feel very welcome. And in time, when my family had finished the school and. They were ready to come. We came here and we'll never look back one day. Yeah, it's amazing too because people, I think, forget about that. Like, you need that balance. It's kind of hard to to enjoy your football on the pitch if if you have you know kids that are unhappy and a wife that it's unhappy and and these moves that you see suddenly out of nowhere where a player has requested a transfer. I often wonder how much of it is kind of family related. You know, it's 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 family members who are unhappy or school situations are not ideal or you could have a kid who's got a learning disability and therefore this city doesn't present, you know, like there's a there's a whole multitude of reasons as to why someone would want to change locations. It's not just about, you know, the, the game on the pitch. No, I, I completely agree with you. And if your wife's moaning or, or your girlfriend or your kids are not settling, then there's no doubt that you're never going to settle. You know, it's impossible. So that's really important. And, and like I say, uh, I, you know, I want to give the credit to TFC and absolutely staff there are, are tremendous. But it's, I think it's more of an MLSC thing because I don't hear many complaints for Raptors and, and Maple Leafs players as well. It's just an incredible organisation and they understand that it's about making the athlete content and happy or his family content and happy so that he can then go and perform at the best of his ability and I have never seen a club or an organization do it so well let's talk about some of these big name players that have come to MLS uh, over the last bunch of years and you know when I sit back and I, I look at kind of the track record of all these players you know you could argue that the impact you know um, play wise has not been that great you know I think Names bring a certain cachet, and they, they help sell tickets and jerseys and all those things. But in terms of someone coming as a big name and actually dominating the league or really putting their foot down, it seems to be a real challenge for, for players to come to the U.K. And, you know, I, I've thought about it myself a little bit just in terms of of what challenges MLS presents as opposed to playing in Europe. And, and what are your thoughts on that? What is it, what is it like for someone who's played their whole life in the Premier League and now suddenly they get on a plane, pack up their family, and now they come play in MLS. How is the game different? How is the league different? What what adjustments have to be made for those players? So uh, I think it's fair to say that MLS is one of the fastest growing leagues in, in world football right now in terms of uh, revenue, in terms of quality, in terms of enthusiasm, excitement, fan attendance, all these things. I think it's fair to say also 
the MLS is a long way behind EPL, La Liga, uh, Bundesliga in terms of quality. No doubt about it. So if you're 25 to 30 year old and you're playing in any of the leagues and you're one of the star players, why would you come to MLS? Maybe money, but that's crazy because you're probably going to get that money somewhere else in Europe. So there's no doubt that you're going to stay in Europe. So the first plan of MLS was to bring in these older guys who were coming to the end of their European careers. They were getting stale. They were either over the hill or they were ready for a new challenge. So they went and brought these players to MLS. They gave them great sums of money and, and they asked them to come and develop a league. And I think that as a whole, the majority of them have done that. And I'm going to take Terry Henry, for example, who was, in my opinion, one of the best players in the world in the early 2000s, played for Arsenal and, and then went to Barcelona and won tons of trophies. And, and he came to New York, Red Bulls, and I think it's fair to say he had some magnificent games. He was influential on the field as, a, as an individual, but certainly influential towards his teammates on the field. But some could argue, you know, his best years were behind him and he never really produced the form that we had seen at other clubs. Obviously, fair to say. But do we ever think about the impact that he had on the Red Bulls Academy and the influx of players that are coming through that now and all the kids in New York who saw this international come, who had won the World Cup, who had won the European, UEFA European Championships, who had won the Champions League, played for Barcelona, was an invincible in a Premier League season with Arsenal, that impact that he had on that community and, and, and all the kids to say, you know what, I ain't going to pick baseball or I ain't going to pick hockey. I'm actually going to play soccer. I'm actually going to keep going back, back to my local club or I'm going to go through a Red Bull Academy. And now they're starting to see it with you know, a tremendous academy, one of the best in MLS. And so I think that you know we have to really be really philosophical about the impact these guys have had and, and, and why it was important. And, uh, you know... Henri's a great example. Schweinsteiger's maybe another one of the kind of guys where, of course, his best years are behind them, but his level's still very high for MLS. And the impact he's going to have in the community and what he's going to bring is huge. And then now we're starting to see, which is really exciting to me, is a Sebastian Javinko who probably comes for money in the first instance, but then realises, you know what, there's a lot of football to be played here. And I'm young and sort of vibrant enough to actually still peak at this level, you know, and, and you have an Almiron and Atlanta and these different guys coming through and, and the young Americans or the older Americans that are coming back to then develop these young Americans who are staying for longer rather than leaving for Europe at such an early stage like a Jordan Morris, they're deciding to stay in MLS and play there for maybe their whole careers, but certainly for a large part of their careers to develop and help the league grow and help their, their own personal careers grow. So, for me, as a league and, and as a league office, it's been really strategic, really well done. Yeah, maybe not quite as quick as some of us would like in terms of the kind of technical development or growth of the league, but really, really good how it's just kind of bit by bit just getting stronger and better and improving. And um, I always think very positively of the impact that a lot of these guys, the, the good ones, the good professionals, the guys that have that mentality to actually realise why they're there and what responsibilities they have. And one of them, of course, is to score goals or to play well on a, a Saturday evening. But another one is to kind of develop and grow and, and take this league professionally and technically to another level. 
Yeah, those are all good points, you know, and stuff that I don't know if everyone considers. Uh, I was down visiting a friend in Houston, Texas, a few weeks ago, and I thought to myself, "My God, how do, how do, how do the how do the Dynamo play in this heat? Like, was that an issue yeah. for you when you guys went to Houston? Because I thought about that about people coming from the UK and now you're playing MLS. It's like you have the travel, which is kind of more extended now. You're on far more planes and going across the country, across the continent. But to to go into Houston in like mid July or mid August and try and play ninety minutes and do it effectively, I mean that's got to be quite a challenge. What was that? Do you remember what that was like your first time playing in Houston? Yeah, I do. And, and um, the first time I came, you know, I came in uh, mid May and I played against Columbus. It was like twenty three in in Toronto in, in mid May, and I was like, God, this is hot. <laughs> and it was nothing. Yeah, I was. I was like, it was like one of the hottest games I'd played in in terms of, you know, my career in the UK. And then I went to DC in June. And I don't know if you've ever been to DC in the summer in a, no. a hot, sticky, humid day, but it's unbearable trend. It's like, it's so humid and hot. And I can remember after the game sitting there in the, in the changing room and just being exhausted, like sitting in my locker for. <laughs> 40 minutes without moving, my shirt's still on, you know, like, yeah. could never drink enough Gatorade or water, I'm just gloggling this stuff down, <laughs> and it was unbearable, and, and I'm like, God, so, my first time in Houston was coming up, it was in July, it was a really important game for me, because Ryan and I had struck up a really great relationship, and Ryan had seen the vision, as like, you're perfect, this club, we want you here, but you know, they had to convince some people that I was worth my salary and that I was, you know, I could sort of play in MLS. And one of the, the, the debates was that certain people in the club felt that British centre-halves above 30 just couldn't play in the heat in MLS and couldn't adapt to the, the travel conditions and stuff. So this game was coming up in Houston and uh, my contract offer was there and it was way below what I wanted and I wasn't even sign unless I kind of get what I got what I wanted and Ryan was like very vocal about saying this game is really important for you because one of the gripes is that you can't play in this these conditions. So right. me being me saw this as a real challenge and a real kind of like right, I'll show these guys. So in the lead up to the game, the trainers and the sports scientists are saying to me, uh, "Yeah, you have to hydrate for Houston on on a Monday before a Saturday game." And I'm like, "What do you mean? Like <laughs> you consciously have to like." Consciously have to drink water for five days, like to a level you've kind of never drunk it before, to make sure that when Saturday night comes, you're prepared. Because if you remember on Thursday night, you're too late. You know you can you can drink like gallons and gallons on Friday and Saturday, but uh, it will have no effect. You just pee it out and you won't be ready for for Saturday night. You know, so I'm like, Jesus, this is like I've never had to think about this stuff before. You know, so. The game comes and, and we play and, and I'm on a, a great game. We're playing really well defensively and, you know, we, we've come away with a nil-nil but the last 15 minutes were like, I, I was almost hallucinating. It was just like constant barrage of crosses and pressure on our box and it was just exhausting. Yeah. Exhausting heat to play and so, um, you know, like these things that it's difficult to explain to my, my compatriots and my colleagues back home. We never have to deal with that kind of we deal with different pressures in different situations, but that's one of the intricacies of MLS and why it's so difficult. But again, back to why I think this league's terrific and why I think that, that this is developing is why are Houston so good this league? 
They have a coach, Wilma Cabrera, who understands what it takes to play in Houston, knows that that type of player. Who does he go and recruit? He goes and gets Kyoto and Elise from Honduras, and he has a Mexican uh, Torres up top, and he has these exciting Central South Americans as part of the team, you know, because that's the type of guy that really uh, thrives and, and does well in Houston. And that's why I, I honestly believe that MLS is not going anywhere. It's only going to get better because every area, every team, every franchise getting very specific to what it takes to, to be very good in that, that city or, or in that area. And, uh, you know, Houston are a great example of that this year. They're having a terrific season and they're very exciting and their players are totally suited to, to uh, Houston Dynamo. Yeah, when I was in Houston too, I just missed out on uh, catching Canada at the Gold Cup, and uh, no, it's a shame. Yeah, they had a, I mean, they had a really good showing. What were your thoughts on uh, on their performance there? For me personally, I thought it was, I had kind of been disheartened with the whole squad over the last bunch of years when they had that uh, that hex blowout that time when they they lost eight yeah. or whatever it was or eight one, and I my heart was broken at that point, but. Turn it back on and watching it again. I really like the style of play, and they kept possession. And there were some real, there's some really exciting players in the squad. What were your thoughts about the uh, the goal cup performance? Yeah, I thought it was absolutely terrific, and um, I, I felt like it was, you know, just a, a, a brilliant uh, tournament for everybody involved. You know, we had a, we have a new coach, I kind of have a new coach, and uh, Octavio Zambrano, and so it was sort of how's he going to be, what kind of style, and we had heard some kind of interviews and talk from him and what he was going to ask for and what he wanted. And um, it, it sounded very flamboyant and we were sort of sceptical about whether young Canadians could play that style and the talent level that Canada have where it was capable of that. And, you know, credit to them and credit to him. Boy, did they perform. They were exciting. They were energetic. They were, they were different from what we've seen in a number of years. They were confident, they were uh, prepared, you know, and, and this is no slight on Floro or anybody else who came before him, but this was a new Canada, this was a Canada that was, you know, set in a you know, 43 formation, we, we obviously have a, an unbelievable young talent, Alfonso Davies, who, who lit up the whole tournament, young player top goal scorer, we had Hoylett, revitalised on the right hand side, scored a credible goal against Jamaica, was really Magnificent all-tournament experience played on that right-hand side with Cavallini, who's been doing great in Uruguay, who was holding the ball up, bringing people in. Laren came in for a game who maybe never had his best game, but definitely has a bright future. Arfield was an amazing pick-up to, to have him choose Canada over Scotland and to be, be out with that energy in the midfield. Just terrific. Borean experience at the back. And I think that the tactics that Zambrano had and the way that he set these guys up was spot-on and uh, terrific tournament, you know, probably deserves to take Jamaica into extra time or into penalty kicks as there was no extra time in the quarterfinal stages and, and Jamaica obviously went on to, to almost win the tournament two minutes away from taking the, the US into extra time and, uh, you know, credit to, to Canada for the tournament they had now. Can't rest on that. Have to obviously move forward, get ready for, you know, the next campaign when, when that comes and, and, and uh, what he said after the tournament, I thought was terrific. We want to be playing against the Colombias and the Brazils and the Argentinas of the world so that we can develop and learn and grow and really test ourselves against the best. 
I think the the future's in really great hands with Zambrano and excited to see how that's going to develop in the next, you know, sort of one to six years. Yeah, it's just, it's insane for Canadian soccer fans to think that it's the last time we qualified, the last World Cup was 1986. Like, I, I was a boy watching it on, uh, we didn't have much soccer coverage back then, so you had to wait for yeah. you know, a special broadcast of something. And, and I thought to myself at the time, like, I'm going to get to see this every four years. This is going to be amazing, you know, to see to see your country play. Yeah. And then to think that, uh, you know, it was all that time ago, it's, uh, it's, it's long, long overdue. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I honestly think that you look at the age of some of these guys as well, and, uh, you know, so exciting. I, I love the lad, Blue Tabla at Montreal Impact as well. I think he's very, very exciting. And hopefully, I know he has Ivory Coast in Canada to choose from. Hopefully, uh, Octavio Zambrano can convince the young lad that his future's here, the potential of a World Cup coming, or at least 10 games of a World Cup coming to Canada in 2026 is is very exciting as well and, and hopefully some infrastructure and some government money and some more pitches and more development in the grassroots. I think it's going to be an exciting time. This, this game, for me, there was a watershed moment in, in Canadian soccer and it never really came for the national team. It came in, in November when Toronto played Montreal Impact and, and TFC played Montreal Impact in what was the best playoff series in MLS history. It was incredible uh, the atmosphere of the stadiums the attendance in the stadiums the quality of the football the drama the the two rivals the rivalry that's growing every single day every single year I just think it was a watershed moment and I think the numbers that we that we had that we saw that we were watching on TV was just astronomical and it for me when we look back when you and I are chatting in 10 years time and hopefully we're at World Cups and we're talking about how good the national team is I think we'll be going back to that day and saying that's actually where we had the turning point uh, for Canadian soccer. Yeah, I hope so. It'll be nice to look back and say that that's uh, that's exactly what it was. Um, we'll get ready to wrap up here, but I wanna I wanna ask you about your transition now into uh, into TV, becoming the the handsome face that is on TSN, <laughs> doing that uh, thing. A lot of athletes make that transition, you know, from. Uh, from their playing days, what what was that like for you? Was that something you always kind of considered doing or, or wanted to tiptoe into? How did that come about for you? Uh, yeah, it was something I always enjoyed. So I, I did that a few times in the UK, uh, just in random occasions when I was suspended or injured. And, and I always enjoyed it. And when I came here, um, I asked if there was any opportunity to kind of have a try and, and fortunately for me and, and you know I'm very grateful to TSN they gave me a couple of opportunities when I was still playing to to be in some EPL shows and to be part of that action and, and it was fantastic and I loved it and it was a very settled team with, with Christian Jack and Luke Wellman and, and Jason DeVos and I was sort of the, the fourth guy who would fill in for, for one of the guys when, when he couldn't make it and um, I loved it and then Jason got a, a great opportunity to move to his role as uh, director of development with the Canada, Canada Soccer Association, and he took that opportunity, and then it kind of opened up for me to, to sort of move into his slot, and, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been terrific. It's great. I work with great people. I have to say, my, my colleagues Luke Wildman and Christian Jack have been an unbelievable help for me. Um, two guys I respect a great deal. Um, Certainly in, in, in the, the sort of media business and, and more importantly, their, their knowledge of soccer and their professionalism and what they do. And 
it's been terrific. I love it. I, I feel like I'm getting better. I can still get a lot better, I hope, because you always have to improve. Uh, but I'm enjoying calling games. It's, it's a great thing to call games with Luke, and uh, we've got a great rapport. The three of us have a fantastic friendship, and, and we get to basically work on every property or, or every sort of soccer game that, that there is. And I love it. I want to keep doing it. I'm looking forward to a World Cup coming up, and I hope that you know my my bosses are enjoying the job that I'm doing, and I can uh, and keep doing it for years to come. It's amazing when I just in this chat that we had here for the last hour. It's like it's amazing how often. Uh the concept of risk comes up in terms of, you know, you're, you're growing up in Scotland. I mean, and you, you know, you end up playing professional football for one thing, which, which not every kid gets to do regardless of where you grow up. Uh, then you find yourself across the pond in Canada playing, you know, for a professional soccer team in Canada. I mean, there's no way you could, you could predict that growing up in Scotland. And then next thing you know, you're, you know, your face is on television as, uh, you know, doing color commentary and, and being an analyst. It's like, it is, uh, it's hilarious how life works out. You know what I mean? Like how you can't really predict how things are going to unfold if you were to look back at yourself at 12 or 13 years of age and go, here's where you're going to be, you know, in, in uh, 25, 30 plus years. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Trent. It's, it's incredible. And, you know, I got the opportunity to come to this magnificent city and, I, I honestly love this place. I love being able to bring my kids up here and to, to live in, in Toronto. It's for me it's the best city in the world. It's cosmopolitan. It's it's has loads to the things to do. It's a safe city. It's, it's a terrific place to live and I'm I'm grateful for that opportunity and I'm grateful to TFC giving me that opportunity and now I'm extremely grateful that, that there's a number of people that want to work with me and want to develop me and, and, and make me the best I can be and uh, you know Every day I wake up, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful. I, um, I, I have my permanent residency. My family are, are here, and I have no intention of moving or leaving the city. It's, it's a place I want to be. I obviously have ambitions and, and, and things that I want to achieve in my career and, and different goals, and, and hopefully that will come through TFC but, or it might be somewhere else, but uh, I'm very settled here and, 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 like I say, thankful and grateful for, for everyone who's helped uh, that along the way. All right, my friend. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, I hope uh, I hope your kids get it done. I hope they get the result. Maybe you can do uh, some uh, put on a headset. And maybe do some uh, some color commentary <laughs> while they're playing. While they're playing okay, mate. All right, brother. Take That's care. Nice the chat. For sure. We'll talk soon. That's how it all started, like a whisper in your ear. Told them you loved them And ran as fast as you could It's not to be taken lightly But then you never were Your fingers bleeding, your body aches From the thunder in your heart So you laid on the line Blindfolded and chalk marked like a good little soldier knew just what you were. Can you give up now? Can you turn this around? Can you keep your heart beating? How do you live when you don't know how? So you laid on the line, 
twisted and chalk marked like a good little soldier knew just what you were